happens? They get stoned, they get beaten, they get put in prison. Now, why does that happen? It happens because Jesus threatens all the powers. He threatens the religious and the political and the economic powers. He does. It's why Jesus was killed, because Jesus was a threat to the powers of his day. And as we proclaim Jesus, as I'm doing now, we talk about Jesus as we preach the gospel, there's an offense in that because Jesus would say to each one of us that he is Lord and he wants to be Lord in our lives. He wants to be recognized as the one who is king and has authority. And if you recognize Jesus as king, that's offensive, that's threatening to every other power. It means that Jesus says to you, you can't be your own boss. And if you're trying to live as your own boss, well, you're screwing life up in the end because that isn't going to get you what you really need. It's not going to win you what you most need. It's not going to get you what you even most want. The only way that you can have what you most want, the only way that you can get what you most need is by recognizing that he is boss and putting him first in your life. And that's an offensive message to us humans who like to be in control of our own destinies. Jesus says, you cannot control your own destiny. If you do, you're getting it so wrong. And so people take offense at the message of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is offensive because it says, trying to do it your own way, you're just messing it up. But we Christians, and now I'm speaking to those of us who are Christians, we should never act offensively if we can possibly help it. You see this in the story of what happens in Ephesus because when the thousands of people pull into the stadium, they're wanting to kill uh, Paul's friends, the city official stands up and he says in verse 37 of chapter 19, you have brought these men here though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. What's he saying? He's saying these people who are preaching this gospel, which so many of you are finding offensive, they haven't actually done anything offensive. They haven't spoken against the things which our culture values. They haven't uh, stood up and condemned us or the things which we hold dear. They have just proclaimed what they believe to be true. They have spoken a message which has offended you, but they themselves have not sought to act in an offensive manner. And that's such an important lesson for those of us who are Christians because if we're Christians and if we're passionate about our faith, we can easily mess this up and muddle it up. We can think, we can say, we can think that we're preaching the gospel and people are offended because it's a gospel. And it might just be that you're offensive because you're being a jerk. So don't be a jerk for Jesus. <laughs> we're not to be offensive. So if you're new here, I hope, if you're offended by the gospel, actually I'm pleased by that because you should be. I hope you're not offended by us. Christian, make sure it's not you who's offensive. Make sure if you're offending people, it's the gospel that's offending people, and not just you. And that can be difficult. It takes maturity. I think all the times I've offended people, and hopefully as I get older, I become slightly less offensive. But I think as we mature, we should learn to be less offensive ourselves. And we also learn that in community, because part of being in a family together in church is we knock the rough edges off one another. And if somebody is being a jerk for Jesus, we can say, stop it. It's not the gospel that's being offensive here, it's just you. So the gospel is offensive, but nothing else should be. Second thing is that we Christians should expect hardship. Paul says this. Let's read from verse 22 of chapter 20. Paul says to his friends from Ephesus, he's been traveling around. After he's left Ephesus, he travels around the Aegean region for about two years. And then he travels back and he's heading for Jerusalem and he wants to see the 
elders from the church in Ephesus who are his dear friends. He spent three years there. He loves them. He's been away from them for two years. He wants to catch up with them. But he doesn't want to actually stop in the city of Ephesus because if he knows if he stops there again, he'll never get away because they'll want him to stay. And so he arranges to meet them a few miles down the coast. And the leaders of the church in Ephesus come down to meet him in this uh, port town. And uh, he greets them there. And he speaks to them and says, Now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. What Paul anticipates everywhere he goes is hardships. And if you're a Christian, you should expect to face some hardship in your life. And we have got to be reconciled to this. We've kind of got to make a decision up front. We know hardships are coming, and so we need to be ready for that, prepared for that. And the reality is that actually in our lives, just as human beings, anything worth achieving always involves hardship. Anything worth getting, really worth getting, involves hardship. If you're going to do well in business, that's going to involve some hardship, some sacrifice. If you're, going to, if you're at school and you want to do well in your exams and get to a good university, that's going to take hardship that you have to study and work rather than just hanging out with your mates and having fun. If you want to have a marriage that is successful, that's going to take hardship because you're going to have to sacrifice and work for that. Anything that is worth having, if you're going to run a marathon and finish it, you're going to have to work hard and sacrifice and get out when it's freezing cold and not miss your training sessions. Anything worth achieving takes sacrifice, involves some hardship. And if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that is going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take some difficulty. It's going to involve some opposition. Now, everybody in life, regardless of your beliefs, regardless of your faith, everybody has difficulties. No life is without hardship. Difficulty washes into everybody's life. If you're not in a time of hardship at the moment, if you're not experiencing difficulty now, good news, you will. It's inevitable. It comes. We all experience times of difficulty. We all experience times of hardship. We all experience times of, uh, of suffering. But Christians face particular difficulties because of our faith. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about just the hardships that happen because you're a human and being alive means hardship. No, he's talking about the hardships he anticipates because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And that's true. Sometimes that hardship can be extreme. A high-profile case uh, recently has been the case of Aisha Bibi, the Pakistani woman who has, again, just recently the high court in Pakistan has uh, affirmed the ruling that she was not guilty of blasphemy against Muhammad and so is not going to die. These incredibly harsh rules in Pakistan that anybody who blasphemes Muhammad can be executed. And uh, that has provoked an uproar in Pakistan. It's provoked riots in Pakistan that this woman who actually had done nothing wrong, she'd simply dr drunk from a jar of water from a village well and then handed it to some Muslim women who found that offensive because she was a Christian. That's provoked incredible hardship. She's been in solitary confinement for nine years People have lost their lives because they've stood up for her. That's 
It's been incredibly, unbelievably brutal for her and for those around her. Our hardships we go through can also be relatively fairly minor. The mockery, the ridicule you might experience as a Christian. People ask you about your weekend. And you say, well, I went to church yesterday. I mean, we what? Were you wasting your time in church? And it was a lovely sunny day. And just that kind of minor hardship can feel tough at times. It's a spectrum. But there will be hardship. It's going to happen. And those of us who are Christians, we also need to be wise in this. We need to recognize the times in which we live. I've heard it described like this, that there are seasons in the life of the church which are like spring, when every seed that is sown just seems to sprout into life. And in some parts of the world, at the moment, it's more like that. It's like that in parts of China, where hundreds of thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus. It's just like every time a seed is sown, life bursts forward. That's spring, that's revival. There's then seasons of summer which is when there's been an impact of the gospel in a culture for a significant time. And as a consequence, the whole culture begins to be shaped by Christian beliefs and values. The whole way a culture is conducted and led and feels is shaped by Christianity. And that has been the case for a long time, actually, in our culture. It's why we have the rules that we do. It's why we live in a liberal Western democracy with the freedoms we enjoy because our culture was steeped in the Christian gospel. And then... Culture can go in times of autumn where a culture begins to move away from Christian beliefs and where seeds are planted but not so many of them seem to sprout and get growing. And then there's winter where there's outright opposition and persecution against those who believe the name of Jesus Christ. And here in the West, here in the UK in 2019, we're probably well into autumn. Our culture is increasingly moving away from its Christian values, from its Christian beliefs and assumptions. And that means that there's more and more challenge which is likely to come our way as Christians. At the moment, nothing too much. We're not suffering like Asia Bibi. We're not going to be put in solitary confinement for nine years because of our faith. But things just get a little bit more uncomfortable for us as Christians. We're not given the same kind of respect. Our beliefs aren't treated in quite the same way as once they were. That's just how it is at the moment. And that's a challenge to us. It's also a huge opportunity because one of the downsides of a, of a culture being shaped by Christianity is that it can just be a shape of Christianity with none of the, rea with none of the reality of Christianity. And Western culture has been like that for a long time a kind of adherence to Christian morals, but no real Christian faith. And so now we have the opportunity in a culture which is post-Christian, moving away from Christianity, to say, this is what it really means to be a Christian. This is what it really means to know Jesus. So it's a great opportunity for us, as well as some challenge. But in the kind of culture in which we live, and the way it looks like our culture is going, we need to be prepared for hardships like Paul was. One of the books that uh, Grace and I recommend people read or insist on people read on the leadership uh, cohort we do each year is a book which talks about how we need to be extremophile disciples. Extremophiles are organisms which live where nothing should be able to live. You've seen it on David Attenborough. Volcanic vents at the bottom of the ocean. Nothing should live there. The water pressure is too great. There's no sunlight the water is too toxic, the temperatures are too high, nothing should exist. But extremophile organisms not only exist, they thrive. Whole ecosystems exist where nothing should exist. And if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to be not snowflakes, we need to be extremophile disciples. We need to have some substance about us 
How do you get some substance where you need to be prepared as Paul was? I'm expecting it. If you're expecting it, it doesn't catch you by surprise. It means that we need to be committed to getting into church, building into community because we strengthen and help one another. It means that we need to know the word of God because this feeds us. It means we need to be extreme. And then last thing is that we're to testify to the good news of God's grace. Verse 24, Paul says, My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You know, you're not going to testify if you don't know it is good news. Paul isn't some kind of masochist. He's not enduring all kinds of hardship because he's just simply trying to prove how hard he is. That's not what it's about. He's not some kind of masochist. He's not just slogging away for the sake of it. It's not that he's just slogging away. No, the reason that Paul is committed, the reason he's prepared to endure hardship is because he knows he has found the pearl of great price. He's found the treasure which is worth more than all else. He's found Jesus. He's found the good news of God's grace. Now, what does that mean? Well, as someone said, the gospel is not good advice. It is good news. And we need to remember that as we proclaim the gospel. We're not just offering people advice about how to do life a little bit better. We're not talking about a lifestyle choice or a different political perspective. What we're talking about is the good news of God's grace. And what does that mean? It means that the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us the answers to the big questions that we need answered in life. There's a lot of uh, talk in our culture today about the need to be authentic. Everybody wants to be authentic. Everything's branded as authentic, even though we know most of the time it doesn't mean anything. It's just advertising. Everything's got authentic on it to try and make it look real and substance. We know in our world that most things are flimsy. We know things that most things are fragile, and we know things don't last. And so we have a focus on we want to lay hold of the authentic, and so we make things look authentic. We get bits of wood and we strip them down so they look like authentic wood <laughs> rather than pretend wood. And we want our coffee bars to look authentic, even though they're not authentic, because they're not, that's not actually how they organically grew. They have been designed to look authentic. And there's this kind of veneer of authenticity which we buy into as a lifestyle look, but it reflects a deeper heart longing that we want the authentic. And so we cover ourselves with tattoos to express our authentic self. This is the real me. I'm expressing who I really am by what I paint on my skin and... We choose a lifestyle which is meant to reflect the authentic me. We're concerned about authenticity. But what the gospel offers us is true authenticity. Because in Jesus Christ, we find the one authentic man. The one in whom there is nothing false. The one in whom there's no hypocrisy. The one in whom there's no kind of side, no spin, Nothing which has been created, nothing which has been kind of engineered, but he just is. He is the authentic one. He's the most authentic human being who has ever lived. And when you find him, you get hold of what is truly authentic, what is most real. You find authenticity in Christ. And that speaks to the other kind of flip side of our desire for authenticity, which is working out identity. Who am I? Where do I fit in the world? What is my worth? What is my value? 
How do I operate in life? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Those big questions, we come to Jesus and we find our identity because he, again, he's the full, ultimate human being. He's the one who has no identity issues. And when we come to him, we can find our identity in him. Who am I? I'm a Christian. I belong to Jesus. I've been saved by him. I've been rescued by him. He's at work in my life. This is now my identity that Christ is at work in me. And the gospel, the good news of God's grace, means that we have hope then of being reconciled to God, so that there's no gap now between me and God. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're coming to God. You come to the man Jesus, you come to God. And that gives us security. And it gives us hope. It brings us into relationship. We're all desperate for a relationship. There's such a focus in our culture on relationship. People are, everybody's desperately searching for romantic love. It's the thing which seems to most preoccupy and dominate most people's lives. It's what fills our TV schedules and our magazines and all the rest. It's all about romantic love. You're trying to find that perfect sexual partner you're looking for, that person you can be, have a perfect, authentic bonding with. It's what everybody's life seems to be about. We've got this desperate search for relationship. And romantic love, of course, can be great, but it's not enough. And if you pin your whole hopes on romantic love, you find in the end it, it can't sustain the size of your desires and it crumbles and gives way. We do need relationship. The only one who can sustain the power of our relational needs is Jesus. It's the gospel, the good news of God's grace. We're brought into relationship with God. The grace of God means that you come to that place of security where you know that there's nothing that you can do, nothing you need to do to make yourself right with God. Because of what Jesus has done, God looks at you and says, you're perfect. Jesus is perfect. You come to faith in Jesus, Christ's perfection is given to you. You're declared to be as righteous as he is. He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. It's extraordinary. That's the grace of God. And so Paul is determined to testify to the good news of God's grace. This is the race that he wants to, to, to run. And we need to experience the grace of God. If you haven't experienced the goodness of the grace of God, you're never going to testify about it. So we need to get our teeth into the grace of God because it's good news and it's what everybody needs to hear. And so, what do these verses tell us? Well, first of all, they tell us that the gospel is offensive because the gospel says you can't do it on your own. You're not good enough. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You can't do it on your own. You need help. And Jesus is the one who can help you. That's an offensive message. also tells us that when we come to that place of recognizing Jesus as Lord, that that's going to cost us. Now, Christians are marathon runners. We're not sprinters. It's about the long haul. It's about finishing the race. It's about keeping going. And if you've been a Christian, I know some of you have, for 40, 50, 60 years, you might feel that you never achieved very much. But if you have been a faithful plodder, if you have faithfully plodded on, putting faith step before faith step, you're winning the race and doing so much better than somebody who looks incredibly impressive but just burns out after a year or two. And we need to experience the grace of God because it is such good news. Those of us who follow Jesus, we need to keep 
getting our teeth into the grace of God, reminding ourselves what it means, enjoying its benefits, living in the truth of it. And for those of you who don't yet know Jesus, that's the invitation to you today to step into an experience of the grace of God, that like the Apostle Paul, you can say, I've found the great treasure, I've found the great pearl, I've found the thing which is worth obtaining and having above and over everything else, because Jesus is the authentic one. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Amen. Great. So the band back up, and we pray. Why don't we stand together and I'll pray, and uh, we'll come back into worship. Jesus, I thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that you are the pearl of great price. You're the treasure to be laid hold of. And thank you that you make yourself available to us. Thank you it's not by our efforts that we lay hold of you, but you freely give yourself to us. Thank you that longing in our hearts for relationship, that desire for a sense of identity, the need we feel to lay hold of what is authentic. You're the answer to those longings. And I pray that each one of us in this room today would know that. I pray that we would run as those who are running for the finish line, King Jesus, because we know that what we lay hold of in you is a prize above prizes. It's the treasure above treasure that we get to know and experience the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's worship him.